Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Mao's Unpractice and Contradiction, and we've reached the third of the major chapters, where this is further going into contradiction and how to handle it. Uh, It's broken up into multiple readings, but we'll tackle the start of it with this episode. So let's get going. Chapter 10 on the correct handling of contradictions among the people. Our general subject is the correct handling of contradictions among the people. For convenience, let us discuss it under 12 subheadings. Although reference will be made to contradictions between ourselves and the enemy, this discussion will center on contradictions among the people. Section 1. Two types of contradictions differing in nature. Never before has our country been as united as it is today. The victories of the bourgeois democratic revolution and of the socialist revolution and our achievements in social reconstruction have rapidly changed the face of the old China. A still brighter future lies ahead for our motherland. The days of national disunity and chaos which the people detested are gone, never to return. Led by the working class and the Communist Party, our 600 million people, united as one, are engaged in the great task of building socialism, the unification of our country, the unity of our people, and the unity of our various nationalities. These are the basic guarantees for the sure triumph of our cause. However, this does not mean that contradictions no longer exist in our society. To imagine that none exists is a naive idea, which is at variance with objective reality. We are confronted with two types of social contradictions, those between ourselves and the enemy, and those among the people. The two are totally different in nature. To understand these two different types of contradictions correctly, we must first be clear about what is meant by the people and what is meant by the enemy. The concept of the people varies in content in different countries and in different periods of history in a given country. Take our own country, for example. During the war of resistance against Japan, all those classes, strata, and social groups opposing Japanese aggression came within the category of the people, while the Japanese imperialists, their Chinese collaborators, and the pro-Japanese elements were all enemies of the people. During the War of Liberation, the US imperialists and their running dogs, the bureaucrat capitalists, the landlords, and the Kuomintang reactionaries who represented these two classes, were the enemies of the people, while the other classes, strata, and social groups which opposed them all came within the category of the people. At the present stage, the period of building socialism, the classes, strata, and social groups which favor, support, and work for the cause of socialist construction all come within the category of the people, while the social forces and groups which resist the socialist revolution and are hostile to or sabotage socialist construction are all enemies of the people. The contradictions between ourselves and the enemy are antagonistic contradictions, Within the ranks of the people, contradictions among the working people are non-antagonistic, while those between the exploited and the exploiting classes have a non-antagonistic as well as an antagonistic aspect. There have always been contradictions among the people, 
but they are different in content in each period of the revolution and in the period of building socialism. In the conditions prevailing in China today, the contradictions among the people comprise the contradictions within the working class, the contradictions within the peasantry, the contradictions within the intelligentsia, the contradictions between the working class and the peasantry, the contradictions between the workers and the peasants on the one hand and the intellectuals on the other the contradictions between the working class and other sections of the working people on the one hand, and the national bourgeoisie on the other, the contradictions within the national bourgeoisie, and so on. Our people's government is one that genuinely represents the people's interests. It is a government that serves the people. Nevertheless, there are still certain contradictions between this government and the people. These include the contradictions between the interests of the state and the interests of the collective on the one hand, and the interests of the individual on the other. Between democracy and centralism, between the leadership and the led, and the contradictions arising from the bureaucratic style of work of some of the state personnel in their relations with the masses. All these are also contradictions among the people. Generally speaking, the fundamental identity of the people's interests underlies the contradictions among the people. In our country, the contradiction between the working class and the national bourgeoisie comes under the category of contradictions among the people. By and large, the class struggle between the two is a class struggle within the ranks of the people, because the Chinese national bourgeoisie has a dual character. In the period of the bourgeois democratic revolution, it had both a revolutionary and a consolationist side to its character. In the period of the socialist revolution, exploitation of the working class for profit constitutes one side of the character of the national bourgeoisie, while its support of the constitution and its willingness to accept socialist transformation constitute the other. The national bourgeoisie differs from the imperialists, the landlords, and the bureaucrat capitalists. The contradiction between the national bourgeoisie and the working class is one between exploiter and exploited, and is by nature antagonistic. But in the concrete conditions of China, this antagonistic contradiction between the two classes, if properly handled, can be transformed into a non-antagonistic one and be resolved by peaceful methods. However, the contradiction between the working class and the national bourgeoisie will change into a contradiction between ourselves and the enemy if we do not handle it properly, and do not follow the policy of uniting with, criticizing, and educating the national bourgeoisie, or if the national bourgeoisie does not accept this policy of ours. Since they are different in nature, the contradictions between ourselves and the enemy, and the contradictions among the people, must be resolved by different methods. To put it briefly, the former entail drawing a clear distinction between ourselves and the enemy, and the latter entail drawing a clear distinction between right and wrong. It is of course true that the distinction between ourselves and the enemy is also one of right and wrong. For example, the question of who is in the right, we or the domestic and foreign reactionaries, the imperialists, the feudalists, and bureaucrat capitalists, is also one of right and wrong but it is in a different category from questions of right and wrong among the people. Our state is a people's democratic dictatorship led by the working class and based on the worker-peasant alliance. What is this dictatorship for? Its first function is internal, namely to suppress the reactionary classes and elements and those exploiters who resist the socialist revolution, 
to suppress those who try to wreck our socialist construction, or in other words, to resolve the contradictions between ourselves and the internal enemy. For instance, to arrest, try, and sentence certain counter-revolutionaries, and to deprive landlords and bureaucrat capitalists of their right to vote and their freedom of speech for a certain period of time. All this comes within the scope of our dictatorship. To maintain public order and safeguard the interests of the people, it is necessary to exercise dictatorship as well over thieves, swindlers, murderers, arsonists, criminal gangs, and other scoundrels who seriously disrupt public order. The second function of this dictatorship is to protect our country from subversion and possible aggression by external enemies. In such contingencies, it is the task of this dictatorship to resolve the contradiction between ourselves and the external enemy. The aim of this dictatorship is to protect all our people, so that they can devote themselves to peaceful labour and make China a socialist country with modern industry, modern agriculture, and modern science and culture. Who is to exercise this dictatorship? Naturally, the working class and the entire people under its leadership. Dictatorship does not apply within the ranks of the people. The people cannot exercise dictatorship over themselves, nor must one section of the people oppress another. Lawbreakers among the people will be punished according to law, but this is different in principle from the exercise of dictatorship to suppress enemies of the people. What applies among the people is democratic centralism. Our constitution lays it down that citizens of the People's Republic of China enjoy freedom of speech, the press, assembly, association, profession, demonstration, religious belief, and so on. Our constitution also provides that the organs of state must practice democratic centralism, that they must rely on the masses, and that their personnel must serve the people. Our socialist democracy is the broadest kind of democracy, such as is not to be found in any bourgeois state. Our dictatorship is the people's democratic dictatorship, led by the working class and based on the worker-peasant alliance. That is to say, democracy operates within the ranks of the people, while the working class, uniting with all others enjoying civil rights, and in the first place, with the peasantry, enforces dictatorship over the reactionary classes and elements, and all those who resist socialist transformation and oppose socialist construction. By civil rights, we mean, politically, the rights of freedom and democracy. But this freedom is freedom with the leadership, and this democracy is democracy under centralized guidance, not anarchy. Anarchy does not accord with the interests or wishes of the people. Certain people in our country were delighted by the Hungarian incident. They hoped that something similar would happen in China, that thousands upon thousands of people would take to the streets to demonstrate against the people's government. Their hopes ran counter to the interests of the masses and therefore could not possibly win their support. Deceived by domestic and foreign counter-revolutionaries, a section of the people in Hungary made the mistake of resorting to violence against the people's government, with the result that both the state and the people suffered. The damage done to the country's economy in a few weeks of rioting will take a long time to repair. In our country, there were some others who wavered on the question of the Hungarian incident, because they were ignorant of the real state of affairs in the world. They think that there is too little freedom under our people's democracy, and that there is more freedom under Western parliamentary democracy. 
They ask for a two-party system as in the West, with one party in office and the other in opposition. But this so-called two-party system is nothing but a device for maintaining the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. It can never guarantee freedoms to the working people. As a matter of fact, freedom and democracy exist not in the abstract, but only in the concrete. In a society where class struggle exists, if there is freedom for the exploiting classes to exploit the working people, there is no freedom for the working people not to be exploited. If there is democracy for the bourgeoisie, there is no democracy for the proletariat and other working people. The legal existence of the Communist Party is tolerated in some capitalist countries, but only to the extent that it does not endanger the fundamental interests of the bourgeoisie. It is not tolerated beyond that. Those who demand freedom and democracy in the abstract regard democracy as an end and not as a means. Democracy as such sometimes seems to be an end, but it is in fact only a means. Marxism teaches us that democracy is part of the superstructure and belongs to the realm of politics. That is to say, in the last analysis, it serves the economic base. The same is true of freedom. Both democracy and freedom are relative, not absolute, and they come into being and develop in specific historical conditions. Within the ranks of the people, democracy is correlative with centralism, and freedom with discipline. They are the two opposites of a single entity, contradictory as well as united, and we should not one-sidedly emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. Within the ranks of the people, we cannot do without freedom, nor can we do without discipline. We cannot do without democracy, nor can we do without centralism. This unity of democracy and centralism, of freedom and discipline, constitutes our democratic centralism. Under this system, the people enjoy broad democracy and freedom, but at the same time they have to keep within the bounds of socialist discipline. All this is well understood by the masses. In advocating freedom with leadership and democracy under centralized guidance, we in no way mean that coercive measures should be taken to settle ideological questions, or questions involving the distinction between right and wrong among the people. All attempts to use administrative orders or coercive measures to settle ideological questions, or questions of right and wrong, are not only ineffective but harmful. We cannot abolish religion by administrative order, or force people not to believe in it. We cannot compel people to give up idealism, any more than we can force them to embrace Marxism. The only way to settle questions of an ideological nature or controversial issues among the people is by the democratic method, the method of discussion, criticism, persuasion, and education, and not by the method of coercion or repression. To be able to carry on their production and studies effectively, and to lead their lives in peace and order, the people want their government and those in charge of production and of cultural and educational organizations to issue appropriate administrative regulations of an obligatory nature. It is common sense that without them the maintenance of public order would be impossible. Administrative regulations and the method of persuasion and education complement each other in resolving contradictions among the people. In fact, administrative regulations for the maintenance of public order must be accompanied by persuasion and education, for in many cases regulations alone will not work. 
This democratic method of resolving contradictions among the people was epitomized in 1942 in the formula unity, criticism, unity. To elaborate, that means starting from the desire for unity, resolving contradictions through criticism or struggle, and arriving at a new unity on a new basis. In our experience, this is the correct method of resolving contradictions among the people. In 1942, we used it to resolve contradictions inside the Communist Party. Namely, the contradictions between the dogmatists and the great majority of the membership, and between dogmatism and Marxism. The left dogmatists had resorted to the method of ruthless struggle and merciless blows in inner party struggle. It was the wrong method. In criticizing left dogmatism, we did not use this old method, but adopted a new one. That is, one of starting from the desire for unity, distinguishing between right and wrong through criticism or struggle, and arriving at a new unity on a new basis. This was the method used in the rectification movement of 1942. Within a few years, by the time the Chinese Communist Party held its seventh national congress in 1942, unity was achieved throughout the party as anticipated, and consequently the People's Revolution triumphed. Here, the essential thing is to start from the desire for unity. For without this desire for unity, the struggle, once begun, is certain to throw things into confusion and get out of hand. Wouldn't this be the same as ruthless struggle and merciless blows? And what party unity would there be left? It was precisely this experience that led us to the formula, unity, criticism, unity. Or in other words, learn from past mistakes to avoid future ones, and cure the sickness to save the patient. We extended this method beyond our party. It, we applied it with great success in the anti-Japanese base areas in dealing with the relations between the leadership and the masses, between the army and the people, between officers and men, between the different units of the army, and between the different groups of cadres. The use of this method can be traced back to still earlier times in our party's history. Ever since 1927, when we built our revolutionary armed forces and base areas in the South, this method has been used to deal with the relations between the party and the masses, between the army and the people, between officers and men, and with other relations among the people. The only difference was that during the anti-Japanese war, we employed this method much more consciously, and since the liberation of the whole country, We've employed this same method of unity, criticism, unity in our relations with the democratic parties and with industrial and commercial circles. Our task now is to continue to extend and make still better use of this method throughout the ranks of the people. We want all our factories, cooperatives, shops, schools, offices, and people's organizations, in a word, all our 600 million people, to use it in resolving contradictions among themselves. In ordinary circumstances, contradictions among the people are not antagonistic, but if they are not handled properly, or if we relax our vigilance and lower our guard, antagonism may arise. In a socialist country, a development of this kind is usually only a localized and temporary phenomenon. The reason is that the system of exploitation of man by man has been abolished and the interests of the people are fundamentally identical. The antagonistic actions which took place on a fairly wide scale during the Hungarian incident 
were the result of the operations of both domestic and foreign counter-revolutionary elements. This was a particular as well as a temporary phenomenon. It was a case of the reactionaries inside a socialist country, in league with the imperialists, attempting to achieve their conspiratorial aims by taking advantage of contradictions among the people to foment dissension and stir up disorder. The lesson of the Hungarian incident merits attention. Many people seem to think that the use of democratic method to resolve contradictions among the people is something new. Actually, it is not. Marxists have always held that the cause of the proletariat must depend on the masses of the people and that communists must use the democratic method of persuasion and education when working among the laboring people, and must on no account resort to commandism or coercion. The Chinese Communist Party faithfully adheres to this Marxist-Leninist principle. It has been our consistent view that under the People's Democratic Dictatorship, two different methods, one dictatorial and the other democratic, should be used to resolve the two types of contradictions which differ in nature, those between ourselves and the enemy and those among the people. This idea has been explained again and again in many party documents and in speeches by many leading comrades of our party. In my article on the People's Democratic Dictatorship, written in 1949, I said, quote, The combination of these two aspects, democracy for the people and dictatorship over the reactionaries, is the People's Democratic Dictatorship, end quote. I also pointed out that in order to settle problems within the ranks of the people, quote, the method we employ is democratic, the method of persuasion, not of compulsion. End quote. Again, in addressing the second session of the First National Committee of the Political Consultative Conference on the 2nd of June, I said, quote, The People's Democratic Dictatorship uses two methods. Towards the enemy, it uses the method of dictatorship. That is, for as long a period of time as is necessary, it does not permit them to take part in political activity and compels them to obey the law of the people's government, to engage in labor, and, through such labor, be transformed into new men. Towards the people, on the contrary, it uses the method of democracy and not of compulsion. That is, it must necessarily let them take part in political activity and does not compel them to do this or that, but uses the method of democracy to educate and persuade. Such education is self-education for the people, and its basic method is criticism and self-criticism. End quote. Thus, on many occasions we have discussed the use of the democratic method for resolving contradictions among the people. Furthermore, we have in the main applied it in our work, and many cadres and many other people are familiar with it in practice. Why then do some people now feel that it is a new issue? Because in the past, the struggle between ourselves and the enemy, both internal and external, was most acute, and contradictions among the people therefore did not attract as much attention as they do today. Quite a few people fail to make a clear distinction between those two different types of contradictions, those between ourselves and the enemy, and those among the people, and are prone to confuse the two. It must be admitted that it is sometimes quite easy to do so. We have had instances of such confusion in our work in the past. In the course of cleaning out counter-revolutionaries, good people were sometimes mistaken for bad, and such things still happen today. 
we are able to keep mistakes within bounds because it has been our policy to draw a sharp line between ourselves and the enemy, and to rectify mistakes whenever discovered. Marxist philosophy holds that the law of the unity of opposites is the fundamental law of the universe. This law operates universally, whether in the natural world, in human society, or in man's thinking. Between the opposites in a contradiction, there is at once unity and struggle, and it is this that impels things to move and change. Contradictions exist everywhere, but their nature differs in accordance with the different nature of different things. In any given thing, the unity of opposites is conditional, temporary, and transitory, and hence relative, whereas the struggle of opposites is absolute. Lenin gave a very clear exposition of this law. It has come to be understood by a growing number of people in our country. But for many people, it is one thing to accept this law, and quite another to apply it in examining and dealing with problems. Many dare not openly admit that contradictions still exist among the people of our country, while it is precisely these contradictions that are pushing our society forward. Many do not admit that contradictions still exist in socialist society, with the result that they become irresolute and passive when confronted with social contradictions. They do not understand that socialist society grows more united and consolidated through ceaseless process of correctly handling and resolving contradictions. For this reason, we need to explain things to our people and to our cadres in the first place, in order to help them understand the contradictions in socialist society and learn to use correct methods for handling them. Contradictions in socialist society are fundamentally different from those in the old societies, such as capitalist society. In capitalist society, contradictions find expression in acute antagonisms and conflicts, in sharp class struggle. They cannot be resolved by the capitalist system itself, and can only be resolved by socialist revolution. The case is quite different in socialist society. There, the contradictions are not antagonistic, and can be ceaselessly resolved by the socialist system itself. In socialist society, the basic contradictions are still those between the relations of production and the productive forces, and between the superstructure and the economic base. However, they are fundamentally different in character, and have different features from the contradictions between the relations of production and the productive forces, and between the superstructure and the economic base in the old societies. The present social system of our country is far superior to that of the old days. If it were not so, the old system would not have been overthrown, and the new system could not have been established. In saying that, the socialist relations of production correspond better to the character of the productive forces than did the old relations of production. We mean that they allow the productive forces to develop at a speed unattainable in the old society so that production can expand steadily and increasingly meet the constantly growing needs of the people. Under the rule of imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucrat capitalism, the productive forces of old China grew very slowly. For more than 50 years before liberation, China produced only a few tens of thousands of tons of steel a year, not counting the output of the northeastern provinces. If these provinces are included, the peak annual steel output only amounted to a little over 900,000 tons. 
1949, the national steel output was a little over 100,000 tons. Yet now, a mere seven years after the liberation of our country, steel output already exists 4 million tons. In the old China, there was hardly any machine building industry, to say nothing of the automobile and aircraft industries. Now we have all three. When the people overthrew the rule of imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucrat capitalism, many were not clear as to which way China should head, towards capitalism or towards socialism. Facts have now provided the answer. Only socialism can save China. The socialist system has promoted the rapid development of the productive forces of our country, a fact even our enemies abroad have had to acknowledge. But our socialist system has only just been set up. It is not yet fully established or fully consolidated. In joint state, private, industrial and commercial enterprises, capitalists still get a fixed rate of interest on their capital. That is to say, exploitation still exists. So far as ownership is concerned, these enterprises are not yet completely socialist in nature. A number of our agricultural and handicraft producers' cooperatives are still semi-socialist, while even in the fully socialist cooperatives, certain specific problems of ownership remain to be solved. Relations between production and exchange, in accordance with socialist principles, are being gradually established within and between all branches of our economy, and more and more appropriate forms are being sought. The problem of the proper relation of accumulation to consumption within each of the two sectors of the socialist economy, the one where the means of production are owned by the whole people, and the other where the means of production are owned by the collective, and the problem of the proper relation of accumulation to consumption between the two sectors themselves are complicated problems for which it is not easy to work out a perfectly rational solution all at once. To sum up, socialist relations of production have been established and are in correspondence with the growth of the productive forces, but these relations are still far from perfect and this imperfection stands in contradiction to the growth of the productive forces. Apart from correspondence as well as contradiction between the relations of production and the growth of the productive forces, there is correspondence as well as contradiction between the superstructure and the economic base. The superstructure, comprising the state system and the laws of the people's democratic dictatorship, and the socialist ideology guided by Marxism-Leninism, plays a positive role in facilitating the victory of socialist transformation and the socialist way of organizing labor. It is in correspondence with the socialist economic base, that is, with socialist relations of production. But the existence of bourgeois ideology, a certain bureaucratic style of work in our state organs, and defects in some of the links in our state institutions are in contradiction with the socialist economic base. We must continue to resolve all such contradictions in the light of our specific conditions. Of course, new problems will emerge as these contradictions are resolved, and further efforts will be required to resolve the new contradictions. For instance, a constant process of readjustment through state planning is needed to deal with the contradiction between production and the needs of society, which will long remain an objective reality. Every year, our country draws up an economic plan in order to establish a proper ratio between accumulation and consumption, 
and achieve an equilibrium between production and needs. Equilibrium is nothing but a temporary, relative unity of opposites. By the end of each year, this equilibrium, taken as a whole, is upset by the struggle of opposites. The unity undergoes a change. Equilibrium becomes disequilibrium. Unity becomes disunity. And once again, it is necessary to work out an equilibrium and unity for the next year. Herein lies the superiority of our planned economy. As a matter of fact, this equilibrium, this unity, is partially upset every month or every quarter, and partial readjustments are called for. Sometimes contradictions arise and the equilibrium is upset because our subjective arrangements do not conform to objective reality. This is what we call making a mistake. The ceaseless emergence and ceaseless resolution of contradictions constitute the dialectical law of the development of things. Today, matters stand as follows. The large-scale turbulent class struggles of the masses, characteristic of times of revolution, have in the main come to an end, but class struggle is by no means entirely over. While welcoming the new system, the masses are not yet quite accustomed to it. Government personnel are not sufficiently experienced and have to undertake further study and investigation of specific policies. In other words, time is needed for our socialist system to become established and consolidated, for the masses to become accustomed to the new system, and for government personnel to learn and acquire experience. It is therefore imperative for us at this juncture to raise the question of distinguishing contradictions among the people from those between ourselves and the enemy as well as the question of the correct handling of contradictions among the people, in order to unite the people of all nationalities in our country for the new battle, the battle against nature, develop our economy and culture, help the whole nation to traverse this period of transition relatively smoothly, consolidate our new system, and build up our new state. Section 2. The Question of Eliminating Counter-Revolutionaries the elimination of counter-revolutionaries is a struggle of opposites as between ourselves and the enemy. Among the people, there are some who see this question in a somewhat different light. Two kinds of people hold views differing from ours. Those with a right deviation in their thinking make no distinction between ourselves and the enemy, and take the enemy for our own people. They regard as friends the very persons whom the masses regard as enemies. Those with a left deviation in their thinking magnify contradictions between ourselves and the enemy to such an extent that they take certain contradictions among the people for contradictions with the enemy, and regard as counter-revolutionaries persons who are actually not. Both these views are wrong. Neither makes possible the correct handling of the problem of eliminating counter-revolutionaries, or a correct assessment of this work. To form a correct evaluation of our work in eliminating counter-revolutionaries, let us see what repercussions the Hungarian incident has had in China. After its occurrence, there was some unrest among a section of our intellectuals, but there were no squalls. Why? One reason, it must be said, was our success in eliminating counter-revolutionaries fairly thoroughly. Of course, the consolidation of our state is not due primarily to the elimination of counter-revolutionaries. It is due primarily to the fact that we have a communist party and a liberation army, both tempered in decades of revolutionary struggle, and a working people likewise so tempered. 
our party and our armed forces are rooted in the masses, have been tempered in the flames of a protracted revolution and have the capacity to fight. Our People's Republic was not built overnight, but developed step by step out of the revolutionary base areas. A number of democratic personages have also been tempered in the struggle in varying degrees, and they have gone through troubled times together with us. Some intellectuals were tempered in the struggles against imperialism and reaction. Since liberation, many have gone through a process of ideological remolding, aimed at enabling them to distinguish clearly between ourselves and the enemy. In addition, the consolidation of our state is due to the fact that our economic measures are basically sound, that the people's life is more secure and steadily improving, that our policies towards the national bourgeoisie and other classes are correct, and so on. Nevertheless, our success in eliminating counter-revolutionaries is undoubtedly an important reason for the consolidation of our state. For all these reasons, with few exceptions, our college students are patriotic and support socialism and did not give way to unrest during the Hungarian incident, even though many of them come from families of non-working people. The same was true of the national bourgeoisie, to say nothing of the basic masses, the workers and the peasants. After liberation, we rooted out a number of counter-revolutionaries. Some were sentenced to death for major crimes. This was absolutely necessary. It was the demand of the masses and it was done to free them from long years of oppression by the counter-revolutionaries and all kinds of local tyrants. In other words, to liberate the productive forces. If we had not done so, the masses would not have been able to lift their heads. Since 1956, however, there has been a radical change in the situation. In the country as a whole, the bulk of the counter-revolutionaries have been cleared out. Our basic task has changed from unfettering the productive forces to protecting and expanding them in the context of the new relations of production. Because of the failure to understand that our present policy fits the present situation and our past policy fitted the past situation, some people want to make use of the present policy to reverse past decisions and to negate the tremendous success we achieved in eliminating counter-revolutionaries. This is completely wrong, and the masses will not permit it. In our work of eliminating counter-revolutionaries, successes were the main thing, but there were also mistakes. In some cases there were excesses, and in others counter-revolutionaries slipped through our net. Our policy is, counter-revolutionaries must be eliminated wherever found. Mistakes must be corrected whenever discovered. Our line in the work of eliminating counter-revolutionaries is the mass line. Of course, even with the mass line, mistakes may still occur, but they will be fewer and easier to correct. The masses gain experience through struggle. From the things done correctly, they gain experience of how things are done correctly. From the mistakes made, they gain the experience of how mistakes are made. Wherever mistakes have been discovered in the work of eliminating counter-revolutionaries, steps have been or are being taken to correct them. Those not yet discovered will be corrected as soon as they come to light. Exoneration or rehabilitation should be made known as widely as were the original wrong decisions. 
I propose that a comprehensive review of the work of eliminating counter-revolutionaries be made this year or next to sum up experience, promote justice, and counter unjust attacks. Nationally, this review should be in the charge of the standing committees of the People's National Congress and of the National Committee of the Political Consultative Conference, and, locally, in the charge of the People's Councils and the committees of the Political Consultative Conference in the provinces and municipalities. In this review, we must help the large numbers of cadres and activists involved in the work and not pour cold water on them. It would not be right to dampen their spirits. Nonetheless, wrongs must be righted when discovered. This must be the attitude of all the public security organs, the procurator's offices, and the judicial departments, prisons, and agencies charged with the reform of criminals through labor. We hope that wherever possible, members of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, members of the National Committee of the Political Consultative Conference, and People's Deputies will take part in this review. This will be of help in perfecting our legal system and in dealing directly with counter-revolutionaries and other criminals. The present situation with regard to counter-revolutionaries can be described in these words. There still are counter-revolutionaries, but not many. In the first place, there still are counter-revolutionaries. Some say that there aren't any more left and all is well and that we can therefore lay our heads on our pillows and just drop off to sleep. But this is not the way things are. The fact is, there still are counter-revolutionaries. Of course, that is not to say you'll find them everywhere and in every organization, and we must continue to fight them. It must be understood that the hidden counter-revolutionaries still at large will not take things lying down, but will certainly seize every opportunity to make trouble. The US imperialists and the Chiang Kai-shek clique are constantly sending in secret agents to carry on disruptive activities. Even after all the existing counter-revolutionaries have been combed out, New ones are likely to emerge. If we drop our guard, we shall be badly fooled and shall suffer severely. Counter-revolutionaries must be rooted out with a firm hand wherever they are found making trouble. But taking the country as a whole, there are certainly not many counter-revolutionaries. It would be wrong to say there are still large numbers of counter-revolutionaries in China. Acceptance of that view would likewise result in a mess. And that's going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.